I was born to be a shoemaker. I know it, I've always known it. As I look back now on the long lesson of my life, I can see quite clearly how strong, how remorseless, how unrelenting is the passion within me that has driven me on and on, along a path strewn with so many hardships. Many were the times when I wondered why I was not as other men, why I was not like my elder brothers, content with the things that they possessed, hankering not after the fruits of tomorrow. Yet I could not swerve from my predestined path, no matter what the cost. It was against nature, it was against God. I was born to be a shoemaker, but from whence does my knowledge come? It is not inherited. In later years, I searched the records of my ancestors through 400 years. There was no shoemaker among them. I found many humble property owners. I found a poet. I even found an alchemist, but no shoemakers, not one. Nor have I had to learn in the accepted sense. From my first days with shoes, yes, even with the little white shoes I made for my sisters, I have remembered all about shoemaking. I have remembered that is the only way to describe it. I have only to sit down and think, and the answer comes to me out of the memory of the days. It can be only this. When in some previous existence upon this earth, I was a shoemaker. There can be no other explanation. How else can I account for the fact that at the age of 10, I was a better shoemaker than my master, Luigi Festa, was at 30, or at 60, for that matter? How else was it possible for me to learn everything they could teach me in two weeks in that shop in Naples? How else can I explain my sense of design? I do not have to search for styles. When I need new ones, I select from those that present themselves to my mind as I select an apple from the laden dish upon my table. I read books on astronomy, agriculture, science and chemistry, but never books on shoes and shoemaking. Sometimes I will pick up a coffee of Vogue or Harper's Bazaar and glance at the dresses because I am interested in the general trend of fashion. But when I come to a section on shoes, I flick over without bothering to read. Yet I can sit down at my work table tomorrow and design shoes which will not resemble any I have invented in the past, and I have invented many. Today there are more than 20,000 models in my shoe library, and I hold more than 350 patents, some of which have been used and some of which are waiting to be used when the world becomes conscious of the beauty of the style. Today, now that I can reflect and ponder, I have come to a belief in the reincarnation of man, in his evolution towards perfection. It seems to me that through my eyes are born out of the past, yet they reach me perfected. They come to me full-blown on the cosmic tide. All ancient errors smoothed away. I remember vividly my first experience of this memory returning. It occurred sooner after I went to Santa Barbara when the film studio first gave me the task of designing beautiful shoes to accompany beautiful dresses for costume and historical films. As I looked at the dresses, I felt that there was something missing, something inside me that was incomplete, some vital knowledge absent. How could I design appropriate shoes for the appropriate dresses without that knowledge? I hurried down to the Santa Barbara library and I took from the shelves a volume on costumes through the ages. At that time, I could read almost no English, so, although Italian words leaped out at my eyes from time to time when the author was discussing the fashions of Venice and Verona and Florence and Rome, I comprehended nothing of the text. I flicked the pages, looked at the plates, examining the styles of the dresses of the 15th century, the 16th, the 17th, the frivolity, 
the severity of the 18th, and so on down to the 19th century. When I closed a book, all its knowledge belonged to me. I knew what I could do with my shoes, and I knew what I should do. I also knew how to make the styles differently. Their ancient clumsiness smoothed, their inadequacies remedied by the application of new thoughts and new designs, new materials. I do not mean that I studied the footwear in the book. There were few examples shown because it is a subject sadly neglected by the historians of fashion. I studied the costumes and knew how to harmonize my shoe designs with those dresses. This has been my experience all my life, with only one exception, the search for the secret of correct shoe fitting. To unearth this knowledge, I was forced to seek and study and experiment for many months. Therefore, I believed that the secret had long been forgotten, if indeed it had ever been known at all. The search really began in Benito towards the end of my years there, when I gradually became less and less interested in making and selling a pair of shoes, and more and more interested in the structure of the feet. Feet fascinated me in all their endless variety, and I went to enormous trouble to ensure that every foot was well treated. I took my measurements with painstaking care, and my rewards came in the gratitude of those signori who told me how comfortably my shoes fitted. Yet they did not always fit. There came the days when my customers returned to complain. My shoes, they said, pinched them. Their feet were hurting, and it was the fault of my shoes. Their feet had never hurt them before. But if in Benito I had examined feet with a professional interest and curiosity, in Santa Barbara I looked at them with a passion that bordered on the fanatical. American feet were dreadful. In Italy I had never seen machine-made shoes. Everyone wore handmade shoes, and therefore every shoe conformed in some degree, and mostly a major degree, to the shape of the wearer's foot. In America, the handmade shoe was a scarcity. Footwear was bought off the shelf in a narrow variety of sizes, and the effects of bad fitting were revealed in the feet of the men and the women, including the film stars, who came to my shop. True, there had been bad feet, and many of them in Benito, but there the causes were often easily determined. Children's feet were crammed into shoes too small because they quickly grew out of each pair, and their parents were too poor to buy new ones. Then, too, the materials, even the finest, were far below the standard of the United States, and bad materials make bad shoes. In Santa Barbara, I began to compile statistics. I soon discovered that out of every hundred new customers who came to my shop, twenty had flat feet, an appallingly high proportion. Of the remaining eighty, forty-five had bad feet of one sort or another, corns on toes or soles, calluses on the heels, bunions, crooked toes, painful joints. The other thirty-five did not possess good feet. They got by. That was all. The good foot could not be counted in terms of even one percent. It was and still is more like one tenth of one percent, one in a thousand. In America, I saw for the first time feet which carried the pads of suffering, corn pads, callus pads, and pads to straighten the toes. I saw shoes fitted with arch preservers and heel supports. And when I asked my customers why they wore such atrocious invention in their shoes and on their feet, they replied simply, "Without them, I cannot put my feet into my shoes." I also found that nine women out of ten did not blame their shoemakers or their shoes. I found only resignation. I have inherited bad feet," they would say. "My mother and father had exactly feet like mine. Shoemakers were equally complacent. 
Bad feet were caused by changes in the shape of the feet as the person grew older. Feet aged like the rest of the body and there was nothing to be done about it. Of course, some feet were crippled by bad shoes. There was shoddy workmanship and poor material in many shoes, but good shoemakers could not be blamed. Besides, people's feet were getting better. There was nothing basically wrong with the system of fitting. I found that it was true that feet were better than they had been 50 years or a century earlier. Three generations ago, a pair of shoes, both right and left, were made on one last and were built like boxers. Hard-toed and heavy-heeled, rigid and unbending. Only in recent years have manufacturers of machine-made shoes begun to widen their range of sizes and fittings. From three to four sizes and then to five, from one or two fittings up to eight, ten, a dozen. America was far ahead of most of the world in this extension. Until two or three years ago, you could buy American fittings in England, even in the West End, only in Ferragamo shoes, which were too expensive for most people. Today, retailers still complain that they are compelled by the growing foot consciousness of men and women, particularly women, to carry a much greater variety of fittings than even before the Second World War. They do not like it. It increases their business risks and makes their work more difficult. Then, too, modern technical advances have brought an increasing flexibility into shoes. Rubber unelastic and rubberized synthetics are introduced to produce give. With these improvements in shoemaking technique, there had been an improvement in the feet of the wearers. Reliable statistics are not available. But I would be prepared to say that a 100 years ago, every person of middle and advanced age had bad feet. Every one. It must have been so. If even today, for it is as true now as it was during the First World War, 65 people in a 100 have bad feet, the proportion must have been even more appalling a century ago. Yet, if these excuses were all right as far as they went, they did not satisfy me. It would have been easy to accept them and take blame upon myself for the failure of my fittings, yet I could not. My professional pride was offended. More, my sense of natural laws was outraged. If one pair of shoes fitted, then a second pair should fit also. It did not matter that the feet were not the same that each foot posed its own problem, those problems were basically similar. They all arose out of the shape and the structure of the shoe. Therefore, when taking the measurements, these proportions were taken into account. The shoe should always fit. They should always fit, always. Yet the fact remained that they did not. I felt, without knowing exactly why, that I was wandering in a fog of fallacies and loose thinking. I was therefore driven to the conclusion that there must be something wrong with the method of taking measurements. If this thought, after centuries of an unchanging method, was revolutionary, I could not help it. It was the shoemaker's job to make shoes that always fitted, and if he failed, it was his duty to his craft and his customers to find the reason why. When my night school classes had improved my English sufficiently, for me to understand the lectures I enrolled on as an evening student at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. The subject was human anatomy, and the first few lectures were devoted to the human skeleton. I sat, fascinated and absorbed, scribbling voluminous notes. 
As the term progressed and the lecturer passed on to other sections of the anatomy, I still worried away at the problem of the skeleton. I asked questions, all sorts of questions, continually bringing the class back to the subject it thought it had completed. One night, after a particularly sharp question, the professor did not answer immediately. He looked at me reflectively and said slowly, Now, why, Mr. Ferragamo, are you so interested in the skeleton? I replied at once, I am a shoemaker and I am interested in the feet. The professor retorted, My dear boy, this is a university class where you are supposed to use your head, not your feet. When the laugh was over, and while I was still blushing, the professor helped me over my embarrassment and asked me to explain exactly what I meant. He was there to help me, he said. I had a difficult few minutes trying to make clear exactly what I was after, but I must have managed to interest him because he promised to lend me a series of books which dealt with the anatomy of the skeleton so that I could pursue my studies outside as well as inside the class. The week stretched into months, Three or four nights a week, whenever I could get away from my work at the shop, I travelled a hundred miles to Los Angeles for the university classes. In every spare moment I could snatch, I studied textbooks. Every day in the shop, I studied feet, examining them, diagnosing them through my hands. Soon I found that I could dispose of much of the fallacial thinking. It was not true, for instance, that bad feet are inherited. It cannot be true. If it were, the barefooted native would also suffer from corns and calluses, from exposed joints and fallen arches. He does not because he does not wear shoes. The reason for the prevalence of this fallacy, today there are still many women who believe it, is that members of the same family frequently suffer from the same types of bad feet. For instance, if a parent suffers from, say, a hammer toe, the child may develop a hammer too also. Parents and child, therefore, believe that the bad joint has been inherited. In fact, inheritance is restricted to the formation of the foot, and you cannot inherit a deformity, except through a blood disease in the mother, but you can inherit a type of joint and bone formation which, when compressed into bad shoes, will produce similar malformations on the feet of succeeding generations. Advancing age also does not itself produce deformities of the foot. Though the development of diseases like arthritis, rheumatism, will twist bone and joints. In fact, though this I did not discover until I had been fitting shoes correctly for many years, the foot which is correctly shod does not age. The face and figure may show the telltale signs of advancing years. The feet remain youthful and beautiful. My most recent evidence of that fact are the feet of Gloria Swanson. Only a few days ago, while this book was being completed, she came to my salon in Florence. When I took her feet into my hands, I found them as youthful and as beautiful as when I first shod them more than 30 years ago. With these misconceptions cleared away and with my growing knowledge of the human anatomy, I was fortified in my belief that customers were wrong not to blame their shoemakers and that shoemakers who blamed the feet of their customers were evading the issue. I became more and more convinced that an entirely new principle must be introduced into the system of the measurements. But for a long time I struggled through a period of uncertainty while I endeavoured to translate my deepening abstract theories into practical application on the feet of my customers. 
Sometimes, when a client congratulated me on an especially well-fitting pair of shoes, I felt elated. I was sure that the secret was now mine. Then, when another customer came to complain, I was flung into despondency. My successes were accidents, I thought. My shoes are little better than anyone else's. There were times when I was almost in despair at ever unravelling the mystery. There were moments when I felt that I should just stop wasting my time. I received little encouragement from my older brothers who found my obsession baffling. Why should I so torment myself? Business was booming. We were now comfortably off. We had achieved the dignity of a car, the first Chevrolet, and our customers increased in number daily almost beyond our capacity. There was no need to bother about shoe measurements. I tried to explain that I had to know. It was impossible for me to live and work without knowing. So as I continued to make shoes and more shoes and the same problem arose, I fought down my disappointment and worked harder to unlatch the last door that would lead me, as I hoped and believed, into the promised land where shoes would always fit. And then, at last, at last, I found it. The knowledge of success came gradually, not blindingly like a flash of lightning. It came in the astonished words of my customers, repeated more and more often. But these shoes are so comfortable, I can never go back to my other shoes. In my shoes, they told me, they felt differently. In mine, they could walk without suffering, which is surely no more than the function of shoes. In my shoes, they were happy. I felt I would burst with relief and excitement. My theory had proved workable. I had found the secret. At once, I remodeled every last that could be remodeled. The others, I simply threw away and remade according to my new principles. I flung myself entirely into the business of giving every customer who came to my shop a foot comfort he or she had never known in her life. A comfort which may, perhaps, be best summed up in the words spoken many years later of the former Queen of Romania, wife of King Carol and mother of King Michael. Soon after she had been banished from the throne, she came to me for the first time. And as she paced the floor of my salon in her first pair of Ferragamo shoes, I asked her, do you mind walking about? As she did so, I said, do your feet feel free? Free, she replied. In these shoes, my toes seem to be swimming. This is one freedom they will never take away from me. It is upon this discovery, not design, style or handicraft, but in the foot comfort of the hundreds and thousands of people for whom I have made shoes, that I have founded my fortune.